Yeah, but the last athlete I gave exercises for their feet that made me go, wait a minute, something's wrong here, was Shaquille O'Neal back in 2008. Um, we were working on his biomechanics of his free throw shooting, and I realized after looking at his evaluation that he was losing his balance on every single shot. And people thought, well, it's his hand size, or he's shooting down in the basket, the ball's too small, it's not heavy enough. No, the guy was seven feet tall, and he kept his feet at the at a base that was too narrow for him. So he was literally swaying as he was shooting. And so the ball's release point was never the same. That was kinesiologist Zig Ziglar talking about the importance of the feet, alignment, and balance in the execution of sports skills. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, Gym Aware, KBox, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments allowing me to look at the 10-meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none, Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to another episode of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith, and thank you for being here for episode 140 with kinesiologist Zig Ziglar. Zig is a guy who I originally heard of about seven or eight years ago. Someone shot me an article that he wrote that said, you shouldn't squat through your heels, at which time I was fully sold that you should squat through your heels. I went through the the typical dogma uh, when I was in my earlier years, and I don't know if it's still dogma now, but the whole like squat through the heels, chest up, butt back, and the squat mentality that had slowly but surely chipped away at some pieces of my athleticism. Uh, and also had led me to some back injuries and I read this article by Zig and it was really well done and thought out and this was also a point in my life where I was a little more hard-headed and and in terms of changing my thoughts um, I had thought in my head that just because the majority had of people had said this is the way to squat and this is how you recruit your posterior chain this is how you must do it uh, Zig's work really slowly but surely turned me around I found that squatting people not through the heels uh, but more through just giving them um, the triangle of the foot and letting the foot be or, or working through the arch or the midfoot produced tremendous results in a different uh, way the athletes experienced it. And so uh, long story short, a lot of years went by and I got an email uh, from Zig about some new footwear that he had come up with uh, to restore sensation to the foot and allow it to work naturally. And I thought to myself, hmm, I, I've let this go a long time, and I know the foot is really, really important to performance. So long story short, we got a hold of, 
I got a hold of Zig, and he is on the show. So uh, a little bit of his background. He is an expert kinesiologist uh, specializing in many aspects of sports performance, and he has over 27 years of experience working with thousands of athletes. He's the host of the Run Right Challenge that airs on ESPN Radio Denver. Uh, as an athlete personally, he completed collegiately in track and field, was an All-American in long jump, 400 hurdles, and the 110 hurdles. And Zig is a guy who has he's, uh, invented and developed a lot of different uh, wearable systems for measuring aspects of running technique. Uh, he's a guy who has a, immense knowledge of the human body, biomechanics, how the different pieces fit together, as well as data to back up what he's doing and where athletes are deficient and how to see changes. So uh, I talked with, uh, in talking with Zig beforehand, I realized that you know the foot's something that's cool to talk about, but uh, the direction the show is going to head is he's going to talk about how he got interested in training the foot and how his um, philosophy of fitness from the ground up really got started. He's going to talk about what quantifies a good ground strike, how to assess and correct the feet with strength training, strength training concepts for the feet, uh, which was a really awesome piece. And I think there's a lot of stuff that you can kind of plug into your program concepts uh, just after listening to this. There's a lot of um, assessments you can honestly do. If you're driving, it's probably going to be hard. But if you're sitting there listening to it, there's assessments that you can do that are really intriguing uh, with what you'll find. Uh, finally, he's going to talk about uh, good and bad proprioception training, how to really handle that end of the equation, as well as the idea of coaching cues for the feet and dorsiflexion, as well as other ideas on um, how we look at dorsiflexion in our athletes. So again, a lot of people are interested in training the foot, and this is another piece of solid gold in the Just Fly Sports lineup. Zig Ziglar is a tremendously insightful sports performance trainer, and I'm really happy to have him on the show. If you're interested in learning more about Zig as well after the episode, uh, he has a, the his insole trainers can be found on barefootscienceusa.com, and his main website is called fitnessfromthegroundup.com. So with that said, let's get to episode 140 with Zig Ziglar. What exactly is it that brought you, I mean, what was your background as an athlete, Zig? I guess I want to start there. Sure. Well, how far back do you want me to go? <laughs> yeah. Age two. What did you do when you were, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. just young, yeah. Like middle school, high school. What was your first, like, what was the first sport that really like sparked a fire that you were excited about? Well, you know, the interesting thing is I didn't really get involved in sports. My older brothers were involved in sports. I played soccer as an eighth grader and I was the goalie. You know, I uh, shot up about seven inches from seventh grade to eighth grade and uh, they said, yeah, you know what? You're not really athletic. Why don't we stick you in the goalie box? Um, but I turned out to be a pretty good athlete. Um, and then I didn't play sports again. So I played that entire season. The next thing I did was I ran cross country as a sophomore in high school and uh, fell in love with running and um, uh, wound up uh, by the time we got to track season decided that, you know, 5Ks and 10Ks and 8Ks and all that weren't for me. So when we got to track season, I'm at a new school now. I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas. Um, and the track coach says, uh, you know what, let's make you an 800 runner. So I'm looking and going, well, those hurdles, those look pretty cool. <laughs> but for the first part of the season, I think probably, literally I must have ran six or seven meets in the 800. Ran okay. I think I ran 208 or something like that as a sophomore, which wasn't bad. Um, but it's, you know, for me, you know, I, I wasn't finishing, I wasn't going to qualify for state or anything like that. Um, but then the last meet of the year, the regional, I talked the coach, 
the coach into letting me run the 300 meter hurdles. And I wound up finishing sixth in the region as a first time hurdler um, in the 300 meter hurdles, ran just about 40 flat, which that became my race. So track and field all through the rest of high school and uh, went to Oklahoma State University on a track scholarship, uh, spent a couple years there and then wound up transferring and graduating um, from Western State College in Colorado, which today is a Division II powerhouse. Back then, they were an NAIA powerhouse, um, mostly known for distance running. And, hey, I'm proud to say I still own school records in, in uh, the 110 hurdles there, almost 30 years later. <laughs> it's it's crazy. I Just in you talking there, we have way more in common than I originally thought. I, I also did track at NAIA school. I also did hurdles. My last 300 hurdles, my last uh, uh, my last season, my senior year, I started start doing them. And I also I was the goalkeeper in eighth grade because my knee was I had Osgood Slaughter and I couldn't run around, so they stuck me in the goal. And that was actually the last year I played soccer. So, um, yeah, good cop. What What do you feel like? Uh, like like I guess I I think of it like we gather our skills like throughout life, right? And it kind of works out to whatever we end up doing later on. Like what What do you feel like you skills that you picked up along the way like led into your hurdling or ability to hurdle? Because that's a pretty dynamic. You know, it's a pretty dynamic um, ability. Mm. Well, you know, the honestly, honestly, I wasn't really fast. So I, I wanted to be a sprinter, but I thought, you know what, I'm not super fast. So let me become a perfectionist when it comes to technique. And, uh, uh, and the hurdles could be something I could, could, uh, could excel at. You know, I got fast, I wound up with more speed, uh, and wound up, you know, the you know, 100 meter dash uh, uh, champion for our school as well. But for me, the big focus was I, I really emphasized technique. And uh, so I became flexible, more powerful. I did a lot of plyometric training. Uh, and, and I think that really has led me to what I do today is I studied all of these expert hurdlers and their mechanics and, uh, and technique. And today, you know, 20 some odd years of being in the business of analyzing biomechanics, using motion capture, you know, it was video to start. But I, 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 I become pretty good at seeing what people are doing and just as importantly what areas of their body are impacting the way they do what they do yeah i think it's it's something to be said as well about just like studying technique and i think about 20 years ago because sometimes i forget it's so easy nowadays just to flip on you know youtube and whatever event you want like there's tons of slow motion video of the world's best performers and but mm. and I remember about when I was graduating and in college, it was like 2002, 2000 to 2006, and even in high school a little before then, you would you would have like websites with like slides, like slide decks of technique. I think that's kind of what I I would look at or whatever. Like you'd see one <laughs> slide to the next. I I mean, what were you back? What were how did you you know accomplish that back in the day? That mission of finding that technique from the best. You know, it's it's it was it's interesting. Track and field news would do. Uh, um, shots, photo shots, photo layouts of Ronaldo Nehemiah um, and Greg Foster going over the hurdles. And literally, it was studying the still pictures um, of, of these, you know, great athletes. You know, Skeets Nehemiah was my idol. Um, and, uh, and so it was just awesome. Now, once I got to Oklahoma State, my coach there was Jim Bolding. And Jim Bolding, you know, today, because they don't run the event anymore, still holds the world record for the 440-yard hurdles. He ran 49-4 back in 1968 or 72 mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, but when I left Oklahoma State, what we would do is we would video 
I, my coaches in Colorado would video me. I'd send it by mail to Coach Bolding, and then he would give me some feedback. So it was like this one to two week delay in in getting feedback from the from the coach that I respected when it came to to hurdling technique. Um, after that, it was just more video, more video, more video. I love it, man. Uh, so with all you know, being a student of the sport so much, what led you into studying the foot in particular? Because I think that's an interesting area for people to end up. I mean, it's a critical area, right? But it's an area that not, I mean, way more people care about lifting heavy barbells, I think, than studying the foot. So what, uh, what led you down that route? Well, uh, I can tell you this, the foot's not sexy. Um, <laughs> but, uh, or not as sexy as barbell lifting and all the stuff that you get to see in the mirror. But my own personal history of injuries with the feet. You know, they stuck me on orthotics when, you know, I was a freshman at Oklahoma State uh, because I had shin splints and stress fractures and uh, runner's knee. I had all these injuries. So what I knew from the time I was a freshman was, hey, put myself in or put these orthotics in my shoes or an arch supporter, do something to stop me from having this excessive pronation of my feet. Uh, which you know I learned at that early age. And so for years, I was myself wearing orthotics. And once I got into the business of, of helping athletes or helping people, I would refer them to people who could put them in orthotics as well because it was what I knew. Um, now, in graduate school, I wound up with a fractured sesamoid bone in the bottom of my foot. It's one of the tiny little bones underneath the ball of your foot. Uh, fractured one, had it removed... Had uh, So that was my first surgery. Then I had another surgery because I developed a bunion on my right foot as a result of weakness. And uh, that surgery, you know, didn't go over very well. Um, so and the big reason was there was no rehab. You know, it was the doctor said, OK, you're done with the surgery. Wear this boot for a while. When you come out of the boot, just go back to doing things normal. The foot will rehab itself. Well, I learned as a kinesiologist that it doesn't. You still have to do something to activate and trigger those muscles. So really, it was it was my own injury soul that led me to start to pay attention to the feet. And what I realized is the feet are the most neglected, yet truly the most important part of the body when it comes to our training programs. Because without them, we have to find ways to compensate and work around them. Yeah, it's. I think it's as so many people that injury is the case that uh, makes us like really slow down and think. And, and I know for me, it's been Achilles tendonitis through the years that has caused me to slow down and think, uh, about footwear, about, uh, what, how am I doing to train my feet and all that? And it's, but I'm so much better for it. And so you'd mentioned, uh, you'd mentioned orthotics. And so, you know, kind of from your transformation of, of using those and recommending those to maybe just take me on that road from that end of the spectrum to what your current philosophy is on footwear okay. and how your foot you know contacts the surface of the shoe sure well if you if you look at for, first and foremost let's take a look at the history of orthotics orthotics when they were invented back in the 1800s they were intended to be a cast or mold to address weaknesses and dysfunction in the feet if you look up webster's dictionary that's what it'll say a brace or or something for um uh, a weak dysfunctional foot um, what it's turned into today is it's been commercialized, in particular over the last 10 years, where people are, have, have this belief now, and even if they go to the doctor, they're being told, you need orthotics and you're going to need them for the rest of your life. Well, if somebody came to you, Joel, let me ask you a question. Somebody came to you and said, hey, Joel, 
you're going to have to wear a cast on your arm for the rest of your life. It's just weak and dysfunctional, but you're going to wear a cast. What What would you say? Uh, probably not something very nice. <laughs> <laughs> or but snarky, being, snarky, likely snarky on my end. Yeah. Well, but that's what's happening to people is they're being told they've got to wear this brace on their feet because it's weak and dysfunctional. So the cure for weak, dysfunctional feet is make it weaker and more dysfunctional. Because if you've ever known anybody who wore a cast, they came out of that cast and the muscles were all atrophied and weak and they had to learn how to use that arm again, so to speak. Same thing is happening with our feet. Um, so about 15, maybe 17 years ago, um, I was invited to do a seminar down in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, which is my hometown, um, by uh, um, a, a local trainer there who had a large fitness forum, J.P. Francoeur. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to talk about the feet because nobody's talking about them. This was 17 years ago. And what I talked about was the importance of introducing exercise to the feet, not just the lower leg where we do calf raises, but actually get the feet and those 80 intrinsic muscles combined for both feet so that they start to do their job. And that will address the excessive pronation or the excessive supination, um, the heel striking, um, the excessive forefoot striking, all of these issues, which when you work the way up the chain, lead to patella tendonitis in the knee or jumper's knee or runner's knee, uh, patellofemoral syndrome, hip pain and discomfort. Even IT band issues, Joel, are related to weaknesses and dysfunction in the feet themselves. They can also, IT band syndrome can also be, you know, uh, exacerbated by other things, but it's typically weaknesses in the feet. And that's what's led me to where I am now, where my focus is let's introduce exercise to the feet themselves. I think that's that's something that resonates so much with me. I know everyone I've ever worked with who's like a heel striker, if I test their foot strength or proprioception, it's generally just terrible, like yeah. like awful. And it's kind of one of those things where I'm like, okay, would I be better off to just keep telling them not to heel strike? Or maybe it would be good to give them, you know, to teach their feet how to work, right? And watch what kind of shoes they're they're using. I think I think a lot of people just tend to think it's just a coaching issue oh just just do this differently and they don't still have the tools well that's so right look one of the things i say is look if you if you physically can't do something it doesn't matter what i tell you as a coach you're just physically unable to do it doesn't matter what your brain says mind over matter no it doesn't it does matter that you physically don't have the strength to land on your forefoot absorb that without the heel dropping. So the compensation is, well, I'll just land on my heel since it's gonna come down anyway. This is the body, by the way, Joel, doing this on its own, compensating for the weaknesses that are already present there. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, what, um, in terms of the body and the way that the body does absorb force on the ground, uh, what what really needs to happen to make like a good ground strike? Like what kind of strength needs to be there? You mentioned like a forefoot dominant strike. Like to you, what what is a good um, level of ability for an athlete who's who's processing the ground really well? Well, that's that's a great question because and here's here's you know the 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 science and the truth behind it from a kinesiology standpoint. The first joint um, that should be absorbing and storing and releasing pressure back up. Uh, the entire chain is the big toe on both feet. The big toe has a job to do, and its job is to stop pronation 
and send force through, and this is important right here, Joe, the transverse arch, which everybody knows about the medial arch on the inside of the foot, but the most important arch is the transverse arch. And essentially, the transverse arch runs from, from toe to toe. It's the arch that connects all the toes together, but the muscles of the feet are triggered, or when that arch is activated, it's because of the muscles of the feet, the foot itself. So if I have the strength to land and my toes can engage and stabilize, they then transfer that, that force right down the center of the, or the meridian of the foot up through the Achilles. There's limited or zero rotation in either direction because the foot has stabilized. And then it transfers up through both heads of the gastroc, not one, which is the case when we see athletes who've developed one head of the gastroc more so than the other. That's an indication of the way they're striking the ground and releasing that force. So if the feet have the ability to, to do what our hands do and create stability, just like when we're holding on to a bar, that's the role of our feet. The problem is they're inside of a shoe. And inside of a shoe, you touched on it, they lost proprioception, the ability for the foot to feel what's happening on the ground, and the foot just shuts off inside of a shoe. Yeah, that that's uh, that transverse arch idea is just it's awesome stuff, and I feel like it's so not well known. I mean, to be honest, I didn't even know anything about it till this last year, and I'm 35 now, and I've been training athletes for about 15 years. So it's like, it, it's it's it, and even till then, I didn't really know much about the arches of the feet. And I think uh, with what you're doing with the ideas on the footwear and the foot sensation, and you mentioned mm. the toes and the activation of that transverse arch. So what um, what needs to let me let me put it this way? How does an act athlete be trained to activate the transverse arch if they are not doing it? And if they're not doing it, how do you know that they're not activating it? Mm, well, the, the the not here's the thing. And I've literally over the last um, let's call it fourteen fifteen years, um, I've assessed the biomechanics and the posture and the the pressure or shock absorption of the feet of over ten thousand individuals. Uh, from all walks of life, uh, athletes as well as non-athletes. And 9.9 .9 out of 10 are not using their feet properly. They have excessive weight or pressure back in their heels, which is an immediate indication that the muscles of the foot aren't doing their job, they're shut off. So the toes aren't present. So if I were to look at an image of someone with a, a an ideal distribution of weight throughout their foot, there would be weight and function in the toes themselves. It looked like two footprints if you just look at somebody stationary. But most people have you know, a collapsed medial arch or tightness on the top of their foot, which keeps the toes from being able to engage. So the first thing I say is regardless of increasing strength is you might have to do some, uh, some flexibility testing. And I've got just a simple test where you take your leg, take one leg and cross it over like you're, you know, you know I call it guy sitting position. You know, you got the, the, so I'm sitting here now, I've got my right leg crossed over my left leg with my um, right ankle at the right knee, so right on the thigh. And if I take my left hand and reach out and grab my foot across the top, I can create a nice little stretch through the top of my foot. And the next thing I say is, try to squeeze your foot. You know, try to make a fist with your foot. For most people, when they do this simple little test, First of all, they feel tightness on the top that's excessive that literally typically runs all the way up the lateral part of the leg, um, through the ankle, into the knee, into the IT band, and into the hip. But the other thing that happens 
is the foot starts to cramp. So one way to simply test whether or not your foot has strength is try to curl your toes while in plantar flexion or pointing your foot, hmm. whether you cross it over or straighten your leg out. Yeah. So that's test number one. Nice. Uh, it makes, it reminds me, would this have, I'm, like, I'm kind of sitting here at my desk. I don't have a ton of space. I'm like trying to do it as I, and I just think about all the people who might be listening to this in the car, right? Like you can't drive and do this. Cause it's kind of, <laughs> it's something I like to listen to and try uh, the, the awkwardness of my desk. I just felt like my hip pop, but I, I, one thing I used to do in high school, and I know for a fact my feet were good in high school. There was some dunk contest. There's a video of this like in a dusty drawer somewhere where I'm like going up to the hoop and my heels are barely hitting the ground. I'm so four foot dominant mm. uh, on my approach. And I, and I remember I would practice, um, I, I did high jump in high school and I would do a stretch where I thought it was kind of for high jump, or I may have just did it because it felt good, but I would like, I would sit back on my heat feet. So I'd be in a kneeling position, my tops mm-hmm. of my feet on the ground. I would sit my butt kind of on my heels and I would just lean back until my head would touch the ground. And then I would try to do that same stretch. Like, you know, I tried to do it this last year and yeah, like the, my feet kind of like would cramp up and everything was so much more immobile, but I never possibly possibly put that together until you just said that. I think it probably is similar. I mean, from what I'm, you're, you're kind of saying, like at least the plantar flexion and then stretching under plantar flexion and, mm-hmm. uh, and not, not cramping out of it. Yeah. If you cramp, then your feet haven't been working. All of a sudden, the brain just finally got the signal to your feet and your feet didn't know what to do with it. So it goes into a spasm. And a lot of people will take that and go, oh, it's, it's a cramp. I need to drink more water or more potassium. No, sometimes it's neurological. And uh, neuropathy once the signal gets there, you get this all of a sudden rapid fire contraction, you know, you got a cramp now. So it's taking care of, uh, and allow, here's what I tell people all the time. Let that cramp pass. Don't fight it. Go with it. Embrace it. Let it pass all the way through. People look at me like I'm crazy, of course. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it's, yeah. And it's probably something everyone is so bad at too. So it's like, you know, it, it if you're not good at it and you're camping up, it's certain, and you've never done any training like that. I could totally see that. I, yeah. so it's interesting too. You mentioned how, uh, and you were talking about like the, the feet on the plate, like how people's, if people are staying on the plate, like that you can't see their toes as much, or like you see more of the medial arch collapsing. That's just from a standstill or is that in, in doing jogging tests or I, I that's, sorry. If I yeah. That's that. just from a standstill. Okay. Yeah. Because here's what I found, Joel, is what you do when you're standing still is what you're going to do when you start walking and running. So somebody steps on my pressure plate. Typically, if one foot turns out, they're going to do that same thing when you're running. We've all seen that person running with that leg that circumducts, that lower leg that kind of kicks out to the side. And we, we make fun of them and we say, well, if they would just straighten out that leg when they run, they'd be so much faster. I tell people all the time, don't try to straighten out the leg. Fix the reason why the leg is doing that, which is typically a weakness in the foot and the ankle and then some tightness in other places, too. Yeah, that that's really interesting. I, it makes me think of a couple of things. The last podcast I did with Dr. Tommy John, he was saying how important he, or how much he likes, especially for young athletes and athletes this day and age, too, who you know, the, the shoes, you know, the cushiony shoes, the lack of play, but like just standing barefoot in a single leg stance. Mm-hmm. Uh, for time and just 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 something like that just to and I do that with like my tennis players a lot and I see so many of them are always like if they get tired they're just always on the outside of their foot it's almost like they have a hard time putting the ball of that big toe on the ground they're just constantly going into kind of supination as they are trying to stand on a single leg and I always find that I always try to tell them to put the whole foot on the ground but I always find that interesting 
Yeah, you want to get them to put the whole foot on the ground and engage their toes, but not allow that medial arch to collapse. And then what I typically look for is, is the foot pronating. And with that pronation, is there any internal tibial rotation which um, will sh give me a couple of indications that there's some weakness on the medial side all the way to the big toe and then all along the transverse arch. And then probably that there's also going to be some resulting tightness on the lateral part of the ankle. So yeah. it's taken all that into account. You, funny you mentioned tennis players. Um, Bethany Maddox-Sands, um, who uh, unfortunately yesterday just had, an, or last week just had another surgery, but uh, I was a part of her rehab team after her major patella tendon rupture at um, Wimbledon a couple years ago. And one of the things that we found was that she also had poor circulation in her lower legs and her feet. So we put her in a pair of our insoles, and we'll talk about those a little bit later. But they began to introduce exercise to her feet inside of her shoes and increase the circulation of her lower leg so she didn't have some of the, the vein issues that she had. Uh, um, but you know, coming back from that injury, a big part of why she even was at risk for the injury was because of weaknesses in the lower leg and feet. Yeah, and and so weakness is certainly you know it's always the hot topic, right? Just tell me what exercises to do, like, and obviously it is yeah. important. And I know we've we've chatted about this over the phone before a little bit, but so athletes, I'm sure there's different strokes for different folks and different presentations. But what are you talked about the toes and the medial arch and and pronation and things like that? And so what are what are some really key go to areas that that you look to strengthen? And then what are some ways that you tend to attack those weaknesses? Well, uh, you know, like uh, Dr. Tommy John, uh, one of the things that I do, uh, and this is an assessment as well as an exercise for people to do, is that single leg balance test, but then making an exercise out of it. With the important thing being that alignment is proper first and foremost. Then out of, of uh, while doing that exercise, we also want to make sure that we're engaging the foot, not curling the toes, but just down applying downward pressure. And while doing that, so this is what makes it a little more complicated and why a lot of times I recommend to the athlete, get with somebody, make sure they're watching you while you do this, is shift the weight forward and make sure it's not completely off your heels, but that you're not resting on your heels. Um, and that first and foremost will just start to give you the ability to support your own body weight. From there, advances to that exercise are to do a calf raise out of it. You know, and my recommendation is when you do that, start doing the calf raise, that you take one foot and place it up on a chair or a bench or something so that you don't have to worry about balance at that point. Because if you try to do a calf raise while balancing, you're gonna fall to your weak spot. So I typically say, put your foot on a chair and the other leg that you're standing on, that one is now gonna do the calf raise. And, you'll, and my recommendation is to do these in sets of five to 10 and periodically look down at your foot because your foot will have a tendency to turn outward or the heel drop in. And we wanna make sure that the heel stays in a straight line or slightly outside of the midline of the foot, not to the inside, because if the heel gets to the inside, that's a weak spot. And you're definitely gonna go into pronation next from there. And that's where bunions come from too. Um, other exercises that people can do are towel curl, curl exercises, um, and I, my recommendation is typically to do your towel curl exercises in plantar flexion, not seated on a chair in dorsiflexion, 
because when you're in, in or neutral, I guess I should say, in bent knee, because when you're in that position, the lower leg can internally rotate and you'll go back to uh, probably even E version of your foot, you know, flipping it, uh, you know, the, the, the outside upward. And that now just allows you to strengthen your foot in the weak spots. I typically say do towel curls in plantar flexion where you're just trying to pick up and grab things and uh, maybe think more of inversion of your foot while you're grabbing the towel rather than eversion. Interesting. So those are just some basics. Yeah, towel curls being the uh, like like grabbing like grabbing with the curling the toes, like grabbing the towel with the toes. Grabbing the towel with the, with the toes. Yes, absolutely. Okay, right on. Yeah, I'm sitting here at my desk and I'm like, <laughs> I'm doing I'm doing it right now. It's like, oh yeah, like I feel that in the arch, that inside arch of the foot. I I uh, I, I like that. It made, reminds me with the heel off the ground of the, what Emily Splickle calls like the high gear position. And mm-hmm. how that's, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not really sure how that fundamentally changes. Th- I know it changes things when I do it and what I feel, but how, what does really change? So when you, as soon as you take that heel all the way off the ground and now you're grabbing with your toes, are you getting more intrinsic muscle activation? Mm-hmm. Um, what's the, is it just putting even more forefoot dominance into it? What are, I think maybe you, I hope you, hopefully I'm not double asking, but what is, what's the fundamental difference once you get into that high gear position for what's happening? Well, well, what what going into any any degree of plantar flexion does is it reduces rotation between the ankle and the lower leg because in order to go into plantar flexion, even with a bent knee, um, your gastroxoleus complex is involved. And I mean, think about it. Try to go into plantar flexion and try to twist your lower leg at the ankle. It doesn't happen. You want to reduce internal tibial rotation during gait, increase gastroxoleus and foot strength. It is impossible to rotate at the ankle when you're in plantar flexion. Interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm messing around there right now. I think I, I understand what you're getting at. And I think the rotational aspect, it's like, I think everyone, including myself in the past, just tends to look at like those big obvious actions that happen in the sagittal plane and mm-hmm. it's definitely those little transverse plane rotational elements the subtle ones that really make a big difference especially when you get injured you know and it's like oh well what happened you know like in looking at the rotational component there's so much to be found in that well i used to teach a course uh, years ago and one of the things that i would uh, and we talked when we talked about linear versus rotational velocities and i used to work with baseball players uh, as well and once you complete any linear movement, rotation has to occur. So if you're straightening your elbow and you stop your elbow at um, uh, 30 degrees, in order to continue to move your arm, your elbow, your shoulder now has to rotate. Same thing happens down in your legs. If you take that runner that's circumducting their leg, the reason why it's twisting it's because they've reached the end of extension wherever it is on that leg, but they haven't reached the end of flexion on the other leg, so they haven't finished the running cycle. So the that twisting leg now has to swing around to make sure that it stays on time huh. with the other leg. It's a compensation. Interesting. Oh, that's yeah. that, that's really yeah. It's like. It makes perfect sense. It it does resonate with some things that uh, Darian Bars taught me on the line with twisting, and it's just like the more I unlock it, the the idea of twisting and rotation, the more sense everything makes with the timing. I I, I love that stuff. Just getting into the nuances of movement. I was gonna ask you too with the toes, and so this was something I'm I'm curious about because 
Um, like I've seen the studies that would show like a standing broad jump increase happens if you do toe curl exercises with a towel, like you'll, you'll put a little bit on your standing broad jump. Um, but then the, you had, you had mentioned like, you don't want to curl. Like if you're doing the standing on one leg, you don't like want to grip, really grip down with your toes. And I've heard that from some people, like not over gripping the toes. Um, and, and I am, I am of that opinion of not over gripping, but like, you said you want the pressure down. Like what, what's like the line there? Like what, uh, I guess uh, you said you don't want to curl down. You would do want some pressure. Um, what's your stance on the, the, like uh, that whole world? I'm not really sure how to phrase it, but you, I think you know what I'm getting sure. at. Well, here's the thing. If you, if you start to curl your toes, if you truly start to make a fist with your foot where your toes curl underneath your foot, that's too far. Mm-hmm. You want downward pressure where you still maintain the linear distance from you know, the, the metatarsal heads, the joints of the toes, um, separating the foot from the toes. You want to maintain that distance, um, so that linear distance. So the feet are long still, not curled under. That's, that's really the key. Um, now, here's one thing, too, that we haven't gotten a chance to touch on, but most people today have misdiagnosed weaknesses of the foot, which lead to tightness or the feeling of tightness, with actual tightness of the foot. So we're getting a lot of rolling out of the foot with balls and, and, uh, and all these different devices. The role of the foot is to provide stability. You've also got other devices out there that are about spreading the toes out. Well, toe spacers are things that spread the toes out are great if your toes are crowded or starting to overlap one another. But if they're not, having a toe spacer is, can be a negative for you because the last thing you want is for your foot to get wider you want it to maintain a nice, close, tight, stable uh, surface, not create as much surface contact as possible. That's one of the myths that's out there is that we want more surface contact. We want less. We just want the foot to not expand or stretch out when it's making contact. So when you talk about that improvement in, in standing broad jump by engaging the toes, it's because the toes didn't have to or the foot didn't have to spread out and then come back together as you left the ground, you just were stable and were able to explode and transfer that force up the rest of the chain. Yeah, I've seen those toe spacers. And for a time, I was intrigued by them. Uh, but I, I'm glad you said that. I feel like, yeah, if you weren't, if you didn't really need them and you use them, you'd probably like weaken your transverse arch, you'd think, because it kind of would spread that out too much. Absolutely would. Yeah, absolutely would. And I think about it. I mean, a lot of, a lot of fast athletes um, you looked at them, you know, gosh, we look at track and field athletes, track and field athletes and have some of the worst feet I've ever seen in terms of being <laughs> when I analyze them. Um, and it's mostly because we're sticking our feet inside of these crowded tight shoes. Um, and, uh, uh, and then that plate on the bottom of the, the spike plate, you know, obviously, you know, any cleated athletes have bad feet period, but track and field athletes, some of the worst feet ever. <laughs> I tell you what, I, I have the, had these triple jump shoes when I was in college that were a, a half size too tight. And I didn't even think about it when I was competing, but I know those did not help me at all. Like I, my pinky <laughs> toe is squished underneath a little bit, like not bad, but it definitely is there. And I'm like, I don't think those shoes did me any favors at all uh, with no. that toe box. No, they probably didn't. They probably didn't. So, and shoes look today, shoes have gotten very technical, you know, uh, they're very high tech. And one analogy that I use is, look, we're taking, you know, this weak dysfunctional foot and putting it in this high tech shoe and expecting the shoe to do all the work for us. But here's the thing. If the shoe's doing the work, what are the muscles of the foot doing? Nothing. So you're no good without those shoes. 
And this is where people have started to become dependent on things like orthotic and these shoes or device-loaded shoes which brace and compensate for the dysfunctions and the feet, lower legs, and so forth. And those cause other issues up the chain. Oh, yeah, 100%. And I was thinking back to orthotics, too. I mean, how far would orthotics be if there wasn't the money, you know, the money behind, yeah. money-making behind it? They'd probably be out. Like, who would want to even? <laughs> it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, it's a multi-billion dollar, I think almost a seven, eight billion dollar oh. industry at this point. Um, and, you know, look, when you can go to a doctor's office and they can sell you a pair of insoles um, for 300 to $500 um, and you're at the doctor and the doctor is telling you this is what you need, you're going to typically listen to that doctor. But here's what happens most of the time. A lot of people now, they're getting home after spending 300 $500 and they wear them for a couple days and they're like, you know what, forget this. This isn't working. So, which is you know great for me and my company with one of one of the products that that uh, that we've come up with um, that is designed to replace an orthotic. Because here's one thing: when you talk about an orthotic, like I said, they were meant to be a, an original cast that allowed the foot to heal. Then you were supposed to do rehab. Nowadays, everybody is using that as the well. I forget the rehab. I'm just gonna wear that. Well, we've introduced a product that actually introduces exercise to the foot inside of the shoe, and we call it a non-orthotic. And that non-orthotic gradually, over the course of anywhere from six weeks to 14 weeks for an athlete, gradually introduces exercise to the foot, improves foot health and function, and we've seen tremendous results in terms of reducing injuries, getting rid of plantar fasciitis for good, um, but also some improvements in performance. You know, like, you know, cutting a minute off your your uh, mile time when you're running a half marathon or a marathon. I mean, those are tremendous improvements, all because the feet start doing their job. Yeah. So with the non-orthotic, too, like and I've seen I've seen the insoles like it's it's whereas an orthotic is like support. Yours is almost like the opposite. It's almost like oh. it's a, tell, I mean, tell me about that a little bit, and how it works. Well, it's it's the anti-orthotic. Um, and um, um, so there's a there are. In the center of our non-orthotic, there's this dome, and that dome is positioned, and, and this years of research and science went into development of this, um, that dome is designed to stimulate the nerves along the meridian of your foot. And instead of, like, you go get an orthotic, and that orthotic is custom-molded, by the way, to your weak dysfunctional foot. Well, with our non-orthotic, it's not custom-molded to anything. It is, you start with the lower level, um, a small stimulant goes in that housing on the, on the backside of that dome, and over the course of time, you gradually increase the height and size of that little insert that goes into our non-orthotic, and over time, you gradually increase the health of the foot, the function of the foot, the amount of stimulation and activation. I mean, literally, here's one of the research, some results of the research, a 300% increase in glute fire by the time you get to level four uh, using our non-orthotic. And that's with CrossFit athletes, cyclists, uh, and runners themselves. But the key is follow the program. I used to give athletes exercises for their feet. I still do. Yeah, but the last athlete I gave exercises for their feet that made me go, wait a minute, something's wrong here, was Shaquille O'Neal back in 2008. Um, we were working on his biomechanics of his free throw shooting, and I realized after looking at his evaluation that he was losing his balance on every single shot. And people thought, well, it's his hand size, or he's shooting down in the basket, the ball's too small, it's not heavy enough. 
No, the guy was seven feet tall, and he kept his feet at the at a base that was too narrow for him. So he was literally swaying as he was shooting, and so the ball's release point was never the same. So I gave him exercises for his feet. He didn't do them. So I said, okay, well, let's just widen your base and at least you know find a cheat. So every athlete is looking for they're looking for a magic pill, and there isn't one. You're gonna have to do some work. And with our non-orthotics, the work is changing the insert level from week to week or every two weeks, depending upon how weak or dysfunctional your feet are. And they work. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, it's amazing, too, just like showing how much more the glutes are capable of when the foot is is activated. And I know, I guess I had a long time ago, Chong Ji talks a lot about the barefoot and the, the, the toes and the natural curling of the toes. So he's very much adamant about that and something that, it's like I'd always heard, but I, I just had never paid too much credence to. Like, but the more I hear about it, the more I just realize, whoa! Like, and even to the point where I remember uh, I I got a pair of um, uh, just minimalist these minimalist zero uh, sand like sandals. I have they're I don't, I don't know exactly what the the exact type they are, but it's just like a little five millimeter strip. And I I decided to run, just do a lap in them, just for fun. I was like, yeah, you know, I can run in these. Like, Why not? And it was like doing it. It's like I felt my hamstrings a lot more, like mm. in a good way. I was like, whoa, like <laughs> this is pretty cool. I feel like I should run in something like this more often. And just, I think I, I just, I've neglected over time uh, the impact of. And, and then too, it's like we just it's like we just want to use the weight room to fix all that stuff you know it's like oh your your hamstrings are weak okay do this like your glutes are weak do this well if we can kill you know if we get two birds with one stone and go from the ground up right like it's just so much more effective oh yeah you got to start with the ground baby and and what involved there is you got to get the feet involved and just being barefoot isn't enough you know because if you've been in shoes and you go barefoot your feet are still turned off you know, so you, you're going to have to intentionally try to activate your feet. Like I said, not curling them under like you're talking about, but um, just downward pressure so that they can start to do their job. Yeah. And I like that too. That's, that's really resonating to me because it's like, you know, the barefoot revolution, just go barefoot. It's like, well, cool. I mean, that's better than wearing constricting shoes and orthotics by a long shot, but there's still, like you said, there's still a lot of like reparation to be made. <laughs> it doesn't just come like that. Yeah, and so you got everybody wearing flat shoes to go do their leg days in the gym, and they're sticking their weak dysfunctional foot in a flat shoe. Um, yeah, no, that's not helping. It's actually hurting you in the long run. Yeah, yeah. Adaria and Bart and I have had similar conversations on that. It's like I, I really like the minimalist shoe. I feel you know it's it's way better than the other shoes, but I I always feel like you know every time I I feel like I really do good foot strength work or I I have like sensory uh, information to my feet. It's just doing so much more than than you know just barefoot, yeah. Because my feet have been turned off over time. Uh, Zig, you you were we had talked about this a little bit before, and then it really intrigued me when you said it was the idea between good and bad proprioception training for the foot. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I guess it's easy to say, oh, stand on this balance ball and and start messing around, right? Like, and that's as if this is like you know the magic pill um but what um uh, what are some ways so you know, outside of footwear and the strength what are some good ways to approach proprioception training for the foot well you know there's there's been this push over the last um i don't know maybe 15 years or so to to do more balance training um and this balance training typically is done on a botsu ball or a wobble board or some kind of unstable surface well if you're on an unstable surface 
you take away the proprioception of the foot and you shift it up into the ankle or lower leg. So the number one thing I'd want to recommend if you're going to do any kind of proprioception training is, again, you should be barefoot. I like the idea of getting on, um, and people with really sensitive feet hate this, but getting on sand or something that has, um, you know, um, nubs or ridges, something that will gradually increase stimulation of the feet by almost like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, acupuncture or acupressure, mm-hmm. you know, standing on, on a rough carpet or a rough rug, even walking on gravel. Those are things that can start to increase, increase proprioception of the feet. Now, if you've got feet that you've been babying for years, walking outside on gravel, not going to feel good. <laughs> you know, so, so maybe you start with something a little bit softer. Um, but even doing something as simple as this, Joe, tickling the foot with a feather can start to help improve your foot's ability to sense things again. Just tickling your foot. You know, when we were kids, it was don't tickle me because, you know, you were really sensitive. If you were not sensitive, tickling didn't bother you a bit. But tickling, you know, those are just little things that could be fun and cute um, but we take, we take them for granted now and we start, and we've just been babying our feet. Yeah. So at the end of the day, it, it really is so much more about sensation, like, like just stimulating the sense receptors than necessarily being in, you know, balancing in space. I guess you could say like the, the sensation is king. That you're exactly right. Cause you can be, you can, you can balance, you can stand on a BOSU ball or a wobble board or, uh, even balance on the flat ground. But you, you've probably found a way to balance as opposed to increase the proprioception. And that's what you want. You want to increase the sensation. Gotcha. So tickle yourself. Yeah, nice. <laughs> yeah. I'll do that before my next workout. We'll see if I can put an extra <laughs> inch of my jump or something. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. I mean, really, I just think about it like, you know, I don't know. What did a caveman have to experience, right, with their bare feet? Like, and that's kind of what you want to do. Like, you know, just rocks and, and you, know, gra- you know, like different surfaces and textures and it just seems natural like that that that's like the natural way of doing it yes and and think about caveman they walked around barefoot so their feet were really tough there were no manicure pedicures so the their the the soles of their feet uh, got really dense and that became a way to protect their feet from the environment but it was pliable enough for them to be able to still move around on rocks and climb trees using their feet that's what our feet were supposed to be like not babied Absolutely. Uh, it's yeah, it's I, I couldn't agree more with that stuff. Uh, last couple of questions is just kind of um, maybe maybe I'll, I'll, I'll wrap a couple up into one in a sense. But at least well, one thing I'm interested in is and you always see is, is dorsiflexion range training. You know, the the idea of getting, you know, being able to do like you know, squat like squat like the guy in, in, in the, um, you know, India waiting for the bus or something like that or, or people who squat all the time in their culture or the idea of everyone should have dorsiflexion like an Olympic lifter. Um, I mean, what's like the medium there? Like what, what are we looking for when we're looking at ankle mobility and range and dorsiflexion, all those things? Well, the first thing we got to do when we're talking about dorsiflexion is make sure that it's true dorsiflexion and not dorsiflexion with rotation or dorsiflexion with inversion, where the foot actually pronates or inverts, uh, or everts, I'm sorry. Um, So if we've got an increase in dorsiflexion, but we've compensated with internal tibial rotation, then that's not true dorsiflexion. Um, So there is an ideal, it finds your neutral, and if you can't get to your neutral, you address the, the restrictions 
on the lateral part of your ankle, the outside of your ankle, that are keeping you from being able to get dorsiflexion and be neutral. That's the key. So, um, so you think about that guy you said squatting in, in India or in some of these countries where they're, uh, they're, they wear less shoes, they don't have some of the restrictions in their lower leg that force them to compensate. So they can pretty much move their knees anywhere they want to go. Um, you know, with the most important thing that the weight is evenly distributed throughout the foot. Now, here's a here's a thing we talk about since we're talking about dorsiflexion. You know, in back in the 80s and 90s, um, we used to study videos of runners, and they coaches would see that Carl Lewis or some of the top runners, their foot was in dorsiflexion when they were um, when it was uh, in the drive phase or the knee was up of that leg. So they started telling athletes. Hey, we need to make sure that your foot's in dorsiflexion. So we've done this intentional motion of dorsiflexion, which is actually something that happens passively. If the foot has done its job and loaded properly, when it leaves the ground in the back and finishes triple extension, it naturally springs forward into dorsiflexion. If we've got some compensation, it won't get there, and we might end up in plantar flexion still, so if our stride's too far behind us. But we want to make sure that we are that dorsiflexion is happening naturally, not that we're forcing dorsiflexion. Because if we do, we turn off gastroxoleus, and now we land, and we don't have the muscles of the foot or the posterior chain to help spring us back to the next step. And we end up placing more stress on other parts of the leg. And if you read an article that I wrote a long time ago, and you touched on this when you, when you reached out to me, the article talked about weight distribution of the feet when you squat. Uh, and it's the weight doesn't go in the heels. If it goes in the heels, you can get massive dorsiflexion. But if it stays forward in the foot, midfoot, then you end up with your ideal neutral. And it might limit how deep you can go on the squat, but you'll work from there to increase range of motion, not by cheating. Yeah, no, that makes all the sense in the world to find your neutral first. And like, it's so many people just want the sake of an ideal. Oh, your knees went forward X amount. Oh, good. Like, you know, versus what what are the joints actually doing in a small micro rotational level? Um, I also, I, I really, I'm glad that you brought it into the dynamic world of sprinting. I, I'm definitely a huge believer, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions and all these things like dorsiflex and heel up, knee up, toe up and all that stuff that people always say, like, I mean, I'm sure their intentions were good, but I, I'm glad that you could lay out and and in my latest book, Speed Strength, the, the whole first chapter is all about the good intention cues that really don't work or do it good or you'll do our athletes justice and 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 cause more muscular activation where it shouldn't be and less in other places. And that's really interesting that it, it and it totally makes sense. Like it's shutting off that calf. And um, yeah, I was just talking a little bit a couple of days ago about like how the foot it's like it's not the strongest in full plantar flexion or dorsiflexion it's always somewhere in the middle and it's the place that the body will naturally take it or put it where it's supposed to be and it's like by volitionally drawing extra into it we just managed to screw it up <laughs> man that hits the nail right on the head i mean like you said the intentions are good so i don't fault anyone for for, for the instruction that they gave the fault that I blame that I put on people though is when they don't do their own homework and ask the question, hmm, does that make sense? Yeah, the the homework I always do is do the athlete get faster? And then the answer was no. And then the next step was, well, why am I doing this? Like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got that for sure. So definitely got that one. Yeah. Awesome. I good stuff to finish with. And 
Hey, I, I really appreciate you uh, being on the show, Zig. Uh, it was it was great talking to you, and uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate it. Absolutely, it's been awesome. You know, and I, I look forward to collaborating with you a little more in the future. All right, that does it for another show. Thank you for tuning in this week. As we 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 knocked out another ten, we're on we're on the one forty one to one fifty realm now, and I am so excited to bring you some more awesome shows, some more uh lot or in person recorded shows as well. This podcast has been a lot of fun to put together, and I hope you enjoy using some of those tools and thoughts that uh, Zig has put out there. I know I'll be thinking of that this week in my own training. So, anyways, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever you're listening to. Also, don't forget to visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology, amazing blog, job board, updated regularly. Uh, they have the best of in each aspect of sport tech. So between flywheel inertia training, muscle stim, force grids, force plates, they really have it all. Check them out. All right, that does it for my uh, wrap-up. We will see you guys next week with another great guest. Have a good one. <laughs>